Welcome, fellow traveller, to the Tent Talks podcast, where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social, and political imagination. Welcome, friends. This is Tent Talks. I'm co-host Chris Marchand. Today on the podcast, I am pleased to welcome Dr. Jamar Tisby. He's here to discuss his book, How to Fight Racism, the Young Reader's Edition. And our conversation ranges from all manner of issues surrounding race and inequality, racial injustice, and everything that's been happening in the world since, uh, well, well, since a long time ago, really, but especially in the last few years and last decade. It's a wide-ranging conversation focused on how to discuss issues of race and systemic racism and injustice, as well as how to address it amongst children and students. How do we begin that conversation? How do we have a better conversation? And really the answer is, is it requires having difficult conversations and long conversations and complicated conversations. You can find out more about Dr. Tisby at jamartisby.com. I also highly recommend listening to the Pass the Mic podcast. And you can also check out his writings ongoing at jamartisby.substack.com. And it's worth looking into the witnessbcc.com and the organization that goes along with it if you are interested in the, the greater conversation and the work that Dr. Tisby is doing. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Jamar Tisby. Here's my thing. Here's my thing. I'm an educator myself. Like I teach an American government class. What? Yeah, it's fun, man. Um, what level? High school. Nice. And, uh, you know, it's like I'm always walking this fine line because it, it's pretty conservative, mostly white Christian families. It's a classical Christian school. Uh. <laughs> and like I just try to teach the history like the, like talk about Dred Scott. You know, it's like. And, you know, like I had this light bulb go off in some of my students. I was like, I said, they couldn't consider him a citizen. And they're like, wait, what? You know, and then, <laughs> and then I and then I had to re-explain the three-fifths rule again. And they're like, wait a second. What does that mean again? Like, I had already taught it to him. I taught it to him two right. months ago. But, like, some of the light bulbs were clicking off. Sure. Like, so it's tough, though, because we're in, I mean, we're in this era of you can't talk about it anymore. I don't know why, but. Right. Uh, Where are you located? I am in Peoria, Illinois. Oh, okay. Yeah. But I teach online classes. So I have kids from all over, like all over the place, America. Really interesting. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I, I am interested in education for kids. I'm also kind of interested in the pipeline, which is the stuff they're getting from their parents. Yes. So <laughs> stuff like, isn't dying out, is it? <laughs> no, no. Here's one of the things in listening to you speak and some of the things you've shared is, and I picked up on this on a recent episode of Pass the Mic, of your own weariness. And, uh, and like, the, you, you have this other moment from a few years ago where you were like, I, I went to this like reform conference. I had to think about every answer that all these white people were going to ask. It's kind of like exhausting yourself. Yeah. Maybe my, my first question is, you have this moment in your book where you're like, sometimes activists have to take a break. They mm -hmm. have to rest. Mm -hmm. 
Where mm-hmm. do you find yourself on this Friday morning uh, in the midst of rest and being active and weariness and energy, whatever? On this day, this particular 24-hour period, I feel good, but that has been a wrestle and a battle for weeks, yeah. for weeks. Um, you know, I think God made us as mind, body, spiritual beings, and anything can happen to us, and and we feel it physically, but we may not acknowledge it. So all that to say, I haven't slept well in a while, you know? Yeah. Finally yeah, got yeah. a great night's sleep last night. Mm-hmm. So now I can run on all cylinders for this conversation, <laughs> which is, you know. Do you have kids? Do you have kids, like young kids and stuff? I've got an 11-year-old. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That, yeah. that can make a difference sometimes, too. <laughs> that can make a difference for sure. But but it's a it's more so kind of the, the, the stresses of um, maneuvering, yeah. uh, particularly around race and justice right now that has yeah. been disturbing me. Um, so, so A, we gotta be proactive. Like this stuff isn't just gonna happen. Like regardless of any sort of advocacy work we're doing, we, we have to be very proactive and intentional about taking care of ourselves as fully orbed beings in terms of our thoughts, our emotions and our, our physical health. Uh, so I think mm. that becomes even more critical when you're resisting uh, the momentum of society, because the momentum of society in so many cases is uh, toward injustice, toward in- inequality. And when you're trying to push back against that, that causes a kind of exertion that we have to take extra care of ourselves. If we want to run this race like a marathon and not a sprint, and it is a marathon. So uh, all that to say then we do need to a pace ourselves and b take a break every now and again uh you know that old tale when mlk was assassinated he was 39 years old and uh in the autopsy the doctor said he had the heart of a 60 year old man Mm. i didn't know that yeah so uh there are so many so many cases of uh activists suffering literal physical and mental health issues because of this work and I think um, in this era where hopefully we're recognizing the importance of not only soul care, but mental health care and physical health as activists and advocates, we pay attention to that. Yeah. And I, what I've been noticing with you is you're, you're paying attention to some of that in your own self. I've just, I just, uh, just what, what little I've observed, I've seen that, you know? What, yeah. In the pandemic, I, I, I had to get outside. I started running for the first time in my life. And I'll tell you, Chris, I'm not built as a runner. <laughs> I, was a, I was a boxer. I was a champion yeah. boxer in college, but uh, running. Are you serious? For, That's funny. For, okay. For yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But running for more than a short distance is not my natural inclination. <laughs> Nevertheless, and, and I was confused by it at first. But what I came to realize, I had to get outside during the yeah. pandemic, during yeah. that racial justice uprising. So I don't know, all of that, I just, I really, really, really now am, am, it's quite front of mind often. Mm -hmm. How are we taking care of ourselves in this work? Mm -hmm. Okay, so you you seem, uh, you you can correct me if I'm wrong, because I've got a lot of narratives going on in my head, but you're originally (laughs) from Chicago, right? Yeah, north, north suburbs. What suburb is that? What suburb? I I don't, I don't usually say all these places, but I, uh, (laughs) 
Waukegan, most oh, yeah. people never heard of it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, I I used to live um, in Evanston. I went to I went to seminary oh, yeah. in Evanston and stuff like that. So yeah, 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 yeah. So I think I think that's what's interesting about you. It's like so I'm from Peoria, Illinois. Uh, so I have a little bit of this. I mean, Peoria is n- known as a highly segregated city. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if yeah. it's prominent. You know, there's too many cities, right? But there you go. It's like it's it is it's still highly segregated. The 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 history of the red lines that no mm-hmm. one really talks about is here mm-hmm. still. Um, but then you have this other weird thing is like you talk about it quite frequently is I've lived in the South like most of my adult life yes. or whatever. Yes. So talk yeah. a little bit about that and how you bring your Chicagoness with the Southern stuff and I don't know. Tell me something about that. Yeah, I, I find that fascinating. I I, I think you're right. I, it's fascinating to me. So <laughs> I'm happy to talk about it. But it, it, it it's um a beautiful. And, and tragic case study in how we can think we're post-racial depending on where we live. So okay. Evanston is incredibly racially and ethnically diverse, linguistically diverse. Uh, where I grew up, I heard Spanish at least as often as I heard English. And that was growing up. So to me, it was normal. It wasn't until college when I went to the University of Notre Dame where I was this hyper minority. Um, I started to feel that in high school, A, through college prep courses where the majority were white and Asian. And then B, uh, when I became a Christian in high school through a white evangelical youth group. So I was aware of the dynamic of being in a minority, but then uh, really felt it in college when I'm the only black guy on my whole floor in the dorm and yeah. you know at the whole table at the lunchroom or at the party or whatever it might be. Nevertheless, though, it was because growing up, there were different races represented. We had this idea that we were further along than we actually were. And as you well know, you can have lots of different people. We're still segregated. We're still very residentially, most often in school settings as well. Then I came to the Deep South, where the rest of the country won't let you forget your very overtly racist past from the civil war to the civil rights movement to lynching to anything like that. So there's a sense in which places in the south are much more racially conscious because they don't have a choice but to be. I don't want to overstate this, but where I am is quite binary. It's it's black and white literally. Yeah, right. Now we have other folks but that's the majority when you say that are you saying that you i mean i assume automatically black people are still wrestling with race consciousness but are white people in the south because i don't have a conception of that like to to me it seems like it's either they've moved on or they are still holding on to a lot and they let you know about it i i kind of hear both but i i don't live there so what can you offer us in that i think what i mean is if you say to anyone in the south including white people that you know racism has been a problem talking about the past immediate yes understand that that the south has been the vector of so much overt racism immediately yes and because of that there is a lot of actual activity and activism around fighting racism Now, obviously, that's not everyone. There are all these reactionaries who are holding very, very tightly to uh, patterns that that are holding us back. But in terms of being in a place where you can't help but acknowledge the racial history and the very ugly racial history, places like the Delta, where I am, which one uh, 
writers have called the most Southern place on earth. Like there's no denying it in the sense, in, in comparison to like growing up in the Midwest where you could say, oh, we never had that many racial issues. Right. Well, <laughs> so I could say that growing up and yet there was this town next to me named Pekin and growing up, everyone was like, Pekin, that's where the KKK is at. And I was like, I'm growing up. I'm like, what? Like, <laughs> like, like it was always these rumors. I don't know enough about our own history, but I do know I have a friend. Uh, uh, there's a local historian. There's a town called Washington, you know, named after George Washington. Okay. This historian looked into was Washington a sundown town? And, you know, there's evidence. It's all around us. Like, mm -hmm. so even if even mm -hmm. if there's not like, oh, yeah, this this happened in 1980 or something like that. It's it, the history is not too that's far right. gone. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's yeah. what the South does in a place like the Delta does. It brings all these things into stark relief. Like it's very obvious, but in seeing the obvious examples in the deep South, it helped me see the more subtle examples across the country. So like you're saying, you know, whether it's the name of a place or the neighborhoods where people live, all of it has a racial history uh, and is either acknowledged or unacknowledged, but it's there. Okay, so this leads to a, a really pointed question, and I'm going to bring up a, a concept that you've brought up several times, and I, I would love for you to unpack this for me. Uh, and because on the surface of it, uh, you, I could see so many people reacting about this. You say racism is always with us it's and it's not gonna it's not gonna go away now i'm curious like could you unpack that some more is this kind of like a like when jesus says poverty will always be with us it's just always going to be a thing uh, you know i could hear people going man that's a that's a you know the, it's like that reverse racism call and i i want to hear what, what do you like even like looking forward 50 100 years if we can tell me more about that because I, I want to have hope, Jamar. I want to have hope. Yeah. <laughs> is there hope in that statement or is there a lack of hope or what, or is it just realist? I think it's realist and it is not a statement that should be used as an excuse for apathy. Okay. So one of the things I frequently say is racism never goes away. It adapts. So that point I'm making, particularly in the book, The Color of Compromise, to show that Though we may have moved on from race-based chattel slavery, which was no easy feat, it took the Civil War to finally precipitate the 13th Amendment, right? So it wasn't easy is what I keep trying to tell people. Oh, we just kind of evolved and got enlightened and then moved on. No, it was bloody. It was bloody. Nevertheless, what I'm trying to convey with the racism never goes away, it just adapts concept is even though we may not have race-based chattel slavery anymore, even though we may not have American apartheid in the form of legalized segregation, there is still a momentum to this nation's racist past that persists to this day. Why is it that we can very confidently predict a person's level and access to education, a person's level and access to healthcare, a person's wealth, and even a person's lifespan along racial lines. And that's what we call a racialized society. That's what Emerson and Smith call it in their book, Divided by Faith. I also wanted to point out that this is intentional. So 
particularly as we are going through the civil rights movement, laws like the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act being passed, it's not as if people are just like, oh, you know what? That really is a good idea. We should, we should be racially enlightened and everyone, we need to treat them equal. Like it didn't, the sentiment that certain people are A, true Americans and B, should hold all the power never went away. So here's an example. I use this in The Color of Compromise in chapter nine, talking about the rise of the religious right. And um, there was a Republican operative named Lee Atwater. And there's an interview that was recorded with, with him years and years and years ago that finally surfaced, you know, decades after the fact. And he said this, you start out in 1954 by saying N-word, N-word, N-word. Of course, he uses the whole word with the hard R at the end. And then he says, by 1968, you can't say N. That hurts you, backfires. So you say stuff like forced busing, states' rights, and all that stuff, and you're getting so abstract. This is back in 1981. 1981. This is not 1954. Then he goes on and says, now you're talking about cutting taxes and all these things you're talking about are totally economic things and a byproduct of them is blacks get hurt worse than whites. We want to cut this is much more abstract than even the busing thing and a hell of a lot more abstract than N-word, N-word. So what is Atwater saying there? We went from explicitly racial language to racially coded language that never uses racial terms, black or white. It uses terms like busing, states' rights, taxes, law and order. But Atwater himself says the byproduct is that Blacks get hurt worse than whites. This is the problem. This is the part where so many, you name the demographic, white evangelicals, conservatives, whomever, cannot see, refuse to see, I would say, that racism goes away, never goes away. It adapts and what it has adapted to is racially coded language embedded in laws and policies from the local community precinct level to the federal level. And until we deal with that, we are gonna to continue to see stark inequality along racial lines. So this, this, I have a follow-up question about this, which really gets me into kind of maybe some of the heart of what I wanna talk about. At the same time, I'm hesitant because I'm already exhausted and I'm not a black man. <laughs> okay. Got to so, do it. We got to do I it. I got to do it. I, if you're okay with me going to a place that like, kind of like a conundrum that I don't know what to do with, I'll bring up something like systemic racism to a friend. Sure. They'll bring up Thomas Sowell. Oh yeah. Or, uh, I, I mean, I know, again, like I know that she doesn't get a lot of respect, but Candace Owens, everybody talks about yeah. it, right? They always bring her up. Uh, yeah. They'll bring up, they'll say, they'll say this. Well, I saw this video on PragerU. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So then, but then I'll say something like this. I'll say, you know what? It really sounds like you, you, you need to get some other black voices that you should be listening to and read. Have you ever read a um, letter from a Birmingham jail by MLK? Like, no, no, I haven't. It really yeah. sounds like you should get some other black voices. And they're like, you know what? There isn't a right type of black person. You know, black, black there's the diversity of black voices. So then at that moment I go, man, you know, like I'm not trying to offend my friend. 
mm-hmm. I wasn't trying to be demeaning, but I'm like saying, it sounds like you need to get some other black voices. Mm-hmm. I'm not asking for advice as, as a white guy. Maybe I am. I don't know. <laughs> what do you do in those moments? Like, how, yeah. how do I tell somebody, don't, don't watch PragerU videos. Right. Uh, right. Or whatever. Or don't, don't, don't quote Vody Bauckham at me. And, and I, I don't know, um, where are you at in being able to dialogue about those types of things? I'm very selective in how much I dialogue about those things and with whom. So generally, yeah. generally not online. Um, if something has, has taken on sort of a life of its own and it lasts more than a tweet long, then maybe I might address it. There's some stuff happening right now as we record it that I'm thinking about addressing, uh, but that's rare. Um, in person, if it's a member of your church, um, particularly for white folks, members of their families, uh, co-workers, etc., y- you might have to address it simply because you, you can't avoid those people <laughs> forever. Yeah. Um, uh, I think what often happens is, is we sort of avoid those topics over time, which I understand, and, and I don't think that's wrong necessarily if you've sort of presented your case and you got to be in relationship with the person but you know you're not going to see eye to eye on this and maybe not worth the conflict every single time you see them so i mean there's so many layers to what you're saying i'm gonna just i'm sorry (laughs) no it's i mean these are what i appreciate about it is a you're circumspect and knowing that for a black person like this is exhausting and b you're talking about a real issue like this is where people are uh so so it's important to talk about here's here's my general take one approaching this whole matter of disagreeing on what seems very obvious around systemic racism and racial issues in general that this is a spiritual and a heart issue as much as an intellectual one and maybe even more so because the reality is and you've experienced this you can stack articles and books from floor to ceiling and it won't make a dent in what someone else thinks or believes on this i think we need to if we're people of faith approach it in the same manner we would approach telling people about jesus you know you present the truth as best you can as persuasively and winsomely as you can but at the end of the day it's going to be up to that person and their conscience about what they decide to do with the information, with the truth. So I think that frees us, lifts Mm. some of the burden off. It's not up to you Mm. to absolutely change someone's mind. You present them with the best information you can, and then they got to wrestle with it. Now, that does mean we have to do our homework to know that information and be able to communicate it well. But I think it actually starts in a place that no one is as familiar with as you are which is your own, what I call your own racial testimony, Mm. your racial justice testimony, by which I mean there was some season in your life, whether it was one particular point or, or a gradual realization where you came to understand racial justice as an urgent issue. And I say, let's be really, really good at articulating that. I had a conversation with X. I read this book. I observed this incident. I knew this person and it changed me. Because that's harder to dismiss than 
read Jamar's color of compromise. Oh, he's just woke. He's going to be biased. They'll do that in a heartbeat. But when Chris says, you know what? Here's my story. What do you think about that? Well, I think that's good for you. Well, what's your story? How did you come to understand what you do about our racial landscape? Oh, well, you know, I just, I, we didn't really talk about, they'll, they'll probably co come to something like colorblindness. I don't see color. I just meet people and treat them as human beings as the way they are. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that's a great idea. I'd love if we could get there. But what do you think about the fact that white people have 10 times the wealth as black people? Like that's been shown again and again over the years. You think that's because there's something wrong with black people or something better about white people? No, I don't think that. I think they just, you know, they have this mindset. Well, if an entire people group has this mindset, isn't that kind of like racist? I mean, you're saying like there's something wrong with black people and the way they operate that makes them more prone not to have wealth. Do you think that's the case? Or maybe, maybe there's some other stuff going on. Like, you know, for a long time, black people couldn't buy houses in the same neighborhood as white people. And generally your biggest asset in terms of wealth is, is your house. And even today, how black neighborhoods, houses, um, same square footage, same all of that valued less than in white neighborhoods. Why do you think that is? Well, I don't know about all that. All I know is blah, blah, blah. But you see, you're slowly sort of casting doubt on their side and you never even brought in soul versus Tisby or Bauckham versus mm -hmm. whoever, right? Mm -hmm. I think you can get there, but it, you know, it's, it's not going to be a direct frontal argument. Yeah. Well, so soul is kind of an academic argument. Like I mean, once you're talking about his ideas, then you're like in another realm. Some people just aren't there is what I'm saying. Like, like, so that's why the personal narrative is so important. Right. That's right. That's you, right. You know, that's right. That's right. quick little question though. <sighs> Have you felt the need to engage with, with those kinds of books or ideas. Oh, who's the other guy that I'm looking at here? Um, John McWhorter, Woke Racism. <laughs> right. I, have, I had a friend that recommended that to me. I haven't read it, right? You know, so I don't know. Like, is, is this stuff you feel the need to deal with or do you just kind of try to move on and do the greater work? Well, firstly, this is an old tactic of white supremacy, which is to pit black people against one another and to take a minority voice, <laughs> by which I mean their perspective is the minority perspective uh, from a black person and use that, weaponize that against other black people. So this is, this is a strategy and attacking and what is happening is when white people cite, I wouldn't even call them conservatives. These are like far right fundamentalist kind of black voices in many cases. Um, when they cite these folks, what they're trying to do is diffuse any possible accusation of racism. Well, see, I'm reading a black person and this black person says this, and since I'm reading from and uh, recommending, a, I can't be racist, right? And my argument can't be racist because this black person is articulating it. Well, understand that holding ideas 
that create or perpetuate racial inequality for broad groups, that is not confined to white people. Black people and other people of color can hold very harmful ideas about race. It's called internalized racism. That's just a strategy. And, and don't let you know the fact that it's coming from a Black person uh, detract from the weakness of the argument or the ideology they're promoting. Now, do I deal with it personally? I mean, Vody Bauckham, from what I understand, referenced me frequently mm. in his book. I haven't directly addressed it, neither with John McWhorter, who doesn't, as far as I know, reference me, um, but others do. One of the ideas that I've just reading, reading some reviews of McWhorter is uh, calls of systemic racism just further causes a victim mentality in the black community. Sure, and right. therefore you can't buy into it because it's just, and it's further separating. And th that's the little line of rhetoric that I saw. And, I'm, and I'm, my brain's just going, oh, okay. So what does your brain do? <laughs> the victimhood calls. So frustrating. How can we be victims if we've been the most vigorous activists for multiracial democracy? I mean, how can we be victims if we are constantly decrying the injustices that we see and experience, you know, that's not a, a victim would just lay down and give up. That is the exact opposite of what black people do every day. The other thing is to cry foul is not to play the victim. Many, many, many injustices have been and are being perpetuated against people of color because of their color, because of perceptions of them, because of, you know, as a black male, perceptions of threat and violence and all of those things, right? And to call that out is not to say, I'm a victim in some helpless sense, which by the way, let's question the terms of it. They often weaponize terms against people. You can be a victim, but they've weaponized that to, to, to be something like disempowering to the person. But if you've experienced a genuine injustice or offense, then you are a victim or you have been victimized. But why should that be an insult? Why should the focus be on the one saying I've been hurt rather than the one who's done the hurting? So that's what I think of it. And I just, it, 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 I think what people are saying when they cry, you know, level accusations of victimhood are two things. One, sort of an apathetic nihilism on the part of the one who's been hurt. They're, they're saying, well, you're only fixated on what's been done to you. You're not sort of pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and changing your attitude and making a different reality for yourself. I think the other thing they're saying with this victim language is all you do is complain and you don't have any sort of solutions or anything. Well, you know, there are extremes in any sort of movement, but by and large, that's not black people's mindset. Yeah. Okay. Here, here's what I'm wrestling with is I really liked your book because what it does is it challenges us. And I, and I saw you walk in the fine line in the book, which is, is this book written for black kids? Is it written, written for white kids? And, and what you're calling it, you're calling us to the table, come converse, talk, learn, grow, be challenged. I guess here's what I'm struggling with is a lot of people don't like um, 
uh, Ibram Kendi, right? Because you know, because they're like you know, you know, calls anti-racist. Why, why do I have to be anti-racist? I, I told you I'm not racist. Not it's the I hear a lot of calls about the the woke progressive left or something mm -hmm. like that, like enacting mm -hmm. almost like creating these somewhat unhealthy unhealthy environments in like academia and different like schools and a lot of new policies and stuff some, some of the stuff that i've heard i don't like i don't think it sounds good either like you know having kids sit in separate places or whatever it is i, I just i like your book is what i'm trying to say i like how you're challenging us to keep talking right. to each other right, right. um right. Right. i don't know right. that there's a question here's, here's my here's my problem is is you're, oh chris you're saying that i'm the good black man I, I i've become the good one now and that, that's not how i see you at all actually i see you yeah. actually kind of in the voice of mlk mm. you, you mm. know High continually crazy. raising up the challenge uh so, but in a good way in a in a productive way man i love how you read chris yeah <laughs> i think i think i think you're digging in to what the real issues are so it doesn't even have to be an explicit question. You're inviting us into <laughs> this dynamic. So yeah. when you write a yeah. book like How to Fight Racism, you're right. There's a tension. Who's this book for? Mm -hmm. Black kids and kids of color, white kids. You can't address racism without white people taking a very active part in the story. Why? Because in a white supremacist society, white people have created and perpetuated this and white people must be part of dismantling it. If you've been a huge part of the problem, you gotta be part of the solution. So honestly, how to fight racism is very geared toward uh, white kids and their families. At the same time, it cannot be done in a vacuum. In other words, all the white people getting together in a room and say, what are we going to do about racism? <laughs> right? That doesn't typically end well, because you don't have the same perspective. And so you need the voices of people of color who have experienced racism, and therefore have a perspective that many white people may not have. But, but it's a, it, what I'm trying to get at is there's a different responsibility. There's a different kind of approach to fighting racism if you have been victimized by it which i would argue all of us have been victimized by it regardless of your color but if 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 you are you know actively the 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 target of racism versus if you're one who benefits from the you know in certain ways from racism and i'm saying that i'm giving all this qualifying language because i get dinged so much there was a this is sort of a sidebar I was in an exchange where I'm getting accused of being a critical race theorist, which is another perfect example of why should that be an insult, right? Going back to the victim thing. Right. Oh, he's critical right. race theory. So first of all, I'm not, I'm a historian. I don't study law like that. I don't study policy like that, right? But even if I was, why is that pejorative? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm just saying one of the fundamental things that we have to do if we're fighting racism is challenge the premise of the argument. Mm -hmm. Like we need not accept their conception that to study critical race theory or even to adhere to it as an academic discipline is a negative in and of itself. We need not accept that as a premise. So anyway, I was in this online back and forth and I didn't initiate it and I wasn't going to weigh in, but it had gone on for days. So I'm like, okay, fine. I got to say something. And I'm in it, this, uh, 
Twitter verified far right journalist weighs in, quotes me out of context and basically says, you know, is trying to bait me into saying, you know, all white Christians are racist. It's trying inherently, right? In response, I said, no, I'm talking about anti-racism. I said, but you passively benefit. If you're not actively working, you passively benefit from it. And then somebody jumps in, writes a whole article based on that tweet that I, I responded with and says, you know, I agree with Tisby on a lot, but not all white people benefit from racism. At which point I'm just like throwing up my hands like, right, of right. course they don't. First of all, that's not an original idea. You're right. <laughs> and this person was an economist. So they're saying, you know, racism only benefited certain white people financially, which duh. Like we've called the civil war, the rich white man's war for decades. That's one you of the know? most insidious things I've learned about the civil war era, which is how the white ruling class, you know, they're basically yes. an aristocracy. Yes. They, they created hatred towards black people for yes. all these poor whites. I'm just like, this is some demented evil yes. stuff. Yes. Like, <laughs> evil genius stuff. Oh my um, goodness. Because they set it up to where white people would work, poor white people would work against their own financial interests in the interests of what David Rodiger calls the wages of whiteness. Okay. So th 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 there's a, there's, there's actual monetary currency, but there's also cultural currency. Yeah, yeah. And there was a cultural currency in being deemed white that was worth killing and dying for in the minds of many poor white people. For them, to be considered white was their ticket to the possibility of wealth and prosperity. Mm. Apart from being considered white, you didn't even have that possibility in you know, antebellum society, right? And, and even right. to some extent today. All that to say that these conversations can easily get sidetracked with very facile interpretations of someone's statements that are part of a much bigger and complex approach to racial justice. Okay, I, I want to do what you suggested just a little bit. I mean, I'm, I'm going to try to be brief here. I want to try to relay a couple of things about my own story and, and see what you're, what, how you might respond to that. I have two things. I have two things. They're kind of, one, one happened much later, but here, here's the first thing. I have this friend. I don't see her much anymore. You know, I have four kids. Life is busy, pandemic, all that stuff. She has been a person that has been a challenge to me over the years. She is a multi biracial, you know, a white mother, black father. She's been incredibly challenging to me over the years in good ways. One of the things she did uh, 10, 11 years ago, I planted a church with another pastor and we're Anglican. So, you know, like, you know, you know, globally speaking, we're not exactly a white church, but in America, it's kind of like, yeah, we're a white church in, in a sense, right? You know, just like historically Episcopalians, all that kind of stuff. She was coming to our church for a while at the beginning, and it didn't take very long where she was like kind of getting dissatisfied for a whole slew of reasons. One of her suggestions, though, was, hey, you guys, you should just go to a black church in town you know get in conversation with them um maybe come under their leadership and and see what that's like before you just plant up and plant a church 
maybe you should just come under uh, a black pastor and see what you should do. Like, what is God calling you to do under that kind of situation? Guess what? I didn't, I didn't even know how to deal with that kind of suggestion. <laughs> so I'm not exactly saying she's right. You know, like I'm, I'm not exactly saying hundred percent. Oh yeah. I should have just done that. But I have pondered that and pondered that over the years. And even if I don't do exactly that, and I'm still thinking, yeah, what does that still look like? Like what, what am I? So for me as a, as a white pastor, a lot of it has to do with me giving up power and giving place and voice. You, you actually, you mentioned that, uh, what, how did you phrase it? Like not just white, uh, not, I'm sorry, not just black, like seat, like not just sitting there, but actually black voice at the table. Yes, 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 yeah. yes. Um, so anyway, that's our presence, but our perspective. There you go. There you yeah. go. That's what, that's right. Yeah. So that's, that's one of my stories is me, yeah. maybe not taking on the challenge all those years ago and just pondering what that still means for me today. That's one that's of good. my part, aspects of my story. Yeah. So frequently conscientious white people wonder what is my place in listening and learning to black folks from black folks without disrupting what is there right so i typically um get this conversation in the context of a white individual or family thinking about going to a historically black church right you know can I do that? <laughs> right? Like, is it, <laughs> yeah, right. is my presence there going to make it not the safe and affirming place that it is for black people? Will it change the dynamic in negative ways? Um, to which I'll say, yes, you should think about that, but it probably will not be as bad as you think. Hmm. in terms of your your your, pre your presence being a disruption because there's several dynamics at play number one you're likely still going to be in a very 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 small minority of white people who are attending this black church mm -hmm. so you know any congregation of any size any decent size going to be able to absorb um you know that that family or that individual without it completely disrupting the culture there Number two, if you go in with the attitude of listening and learning, and I'm not going to come in and try to change this place to accommodate my cultural preferences, then there's not going to be the pressure, the same kind of pressure to change things because of your presence there. And three, what I always say is, even if every single white person who thought about coming under the leadership at a Black church was to do so next Sunday, we would still be dealing with minuscule numbers, right? I, there's no sense in which there's this cascade of white people who are so interested in going to a black church that is really going to disrupt um, what the black church is and has been for generations, is my view. Others may have a different view. What do we do with that? Here's what I think, particularly in terms of like church planting, church expansion, et cetera. We typically think in a very binary and narrow menu of choices. We either plant a church or we don't. We either expand our ministry in this way or we keep it the same or something of that nature. I think there are a lot more options than that. So I do think it should be on the table for every white church of means 
to say, well, hey, if we want to truly minister to the nations in terms of our community, who's already doing it well and how can we support them? Might be a church, might be a nonprofit, might be something else. And particularly financially, because so much of this goes back to the money, right? You know that. I think that should always be part of the equation. I think there's always going to be a need for healthy churches, which also means that, you know, starting new congregations should be part of it. But every new congregation in the year of our Lord 2022 needs to have racial justice in its DNA. And I don't care if it's all white, all Mexican, all Korean American, all black, it needs to have racial justice in its DNA. Can I share with you my other moment? Yeah. You, you, you brought up Trayvon Martin. And f- for me, even though I knew about Trayvon Martin and, uh, and um, uh, Sandra Bland is a big one for me, but what really devastated me and I still grieve to this day is Elijah McClain mm. in, in, in uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul area. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with his story? Mm-hmm. And uh, again, this is my friend. My friend, she shared it with me. She's like, Chris, you, you, you just watch this video. You know, it was a, it was kind of like a little documentary on YouTube. And I, I, I don't know how to even move on from that. Like, I don't know how his mother wakes up every day. I, I, and, and again, I, I know it's the story of like so many, it's so many black stories. But again, that's just part of my own story is like when I learned about his, what happened, how the police treated him, the whole thing. The, the freaking hoodie, you know, it's like, give me a freaking break here. You know, like how, how many kids that I grow up with, I, I'm from rural, small town, Illinois. It's like hoodies are just a thing, man. It's just, like it, hoodie is not a black thing. And so even like how in a city, something like what a kid wears becomes racialized. And then he gets injected with something and tackled and killed right on the spot. I, I, I you know, Anyway, that's just part of my story. <laughs> I don't. I still don't know what to do yeah. with it. I'm yeah. still grieving it. I'm still grieving it. And I think that's part of your racial justice testimony. Um, yeah, but yeah. I think especially since, you know, Trayvon Martin for many, uh, 2014 Mike Brown for others. Then, if we can remember, from 2014 really through like 2017, there was this slew of revelations particularly around anti-Black police brutality. And we even saw cell phone videos. You have Elijah McClain, a big one for me was Philando Castile, who was in the car with his girlfriend and her daughter, informed the officer that he had a legally possessed firearm in the vehicle and was shot and killed in the vehicle without any provocation or, or threat, right? said you could do everything right even tell the officer hey i'm just giving you a heads up there is a firearm in the vehicle and you still end up dead with his girlfriend recording it and you can hear the hysteria in her voice. don't shoot him don't shoot him whatever you do and, and said that before a single shot had been knew the threat was there so anyway you incorporate that into your racial justice testimony because you tell the story of Elijah McClain and I don't care how much Candace Owens they've listened to or whatever, it's bracing. Mm-hmm. It is a bracing story. Yeah. And then you tell the impact that it had on you. You used a powerful word. I'm still grieving. Mm-hmm. And you say to this person, I couldn't learn of this story 
of another image bearer being brutalized without grief mm-hmm. and knowing that this isn't a singular tale, that this has been repeated over and over and over and over again for, for generations, um, that even the Black Panther Party, which came about in the late 60s, was the Black Panther Party for self-defense. Self-defense against whom? Against the police in their neighborhoods, brutalizing their neighbors. So it's not a new thing. It's not an isolated thing. So I, I think there's that. I think also we should not forget in terms of like people asking, well, what do we do? If you want a concrete issue to look at, anti-Black police brutality, which I'll say is different in different places. And it's a very complicated issue in that even Black people by and large support adequate funding for the police and, and better policing um, rather than defunding or abolishing things. Now, that's not uniform, but I'm just saying it's a complex, there's not a, you know, one standard fix or solution yeah, to this yeah, thing. Yeah. Um, but it's one we need to pay attention to because that's, that's what sparked off this massive uprising in 2020. We're seeing a white police yeah. officer on his, with his knee on the neck of George Floyd for over that's nine right, minutes right. and repeated incidents like that. So quick question, not quick question. That's actually not a quick question. Uh, Where are we at now? (laughs) And and the reason I ask that is because in my communities, as soon as the, 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 the racial protests, racial justice protests of 2020, it wasn't very long before most white people I know were complaining about mask mandates. Now, now, my Jamar, that's the real injustice. Don't you know? Don't you know? <laughs> With comparisons now, to Nazi Germany. Yes, exactly. Now, again, I'm not saying there's no issue. Of course, there's political issues and we could talk about it. But the, the mass, um, truly almost conscious ig- ignoring of the cries of people in the black community. Yeah. I guess I'm, I'm, I just want to throw that in there because it just blows yeah. my mind. But where yeah. are things at right now in the sense of that, those kinds of conversations around police brutality in communities? What, you know, cause you, you know, yeah. I'm just, I'm just a dad in a, in a house. You're, you're actually doing stuff, man. <laughs> <laughs> you're doing a lot. Um, yeah, you're doing a lot. Dad in the house. Um, and, and your podcast is a lot. So there you go. Um, yeah. we're in the midst of a backlash right now particularly a backlash around 2020 and not just the racial justice uprisings, but um, the election of, of Biden and um, as well as Raphael Warnock, a black man in uh, senator in Georgia. Who, who is that? I don't, I don't know anything about him. Yeah. Raphael Warnock was, you know, there was a huge and very close Senate race. Oh, I do know about that. Yeah. This was the, the runoff election. That's right. That's right. Gotcha. So, gotcha. So Warnock is actually a uh, pastor of Ebenezer Baptist, which is the same place where MLK passed. Okay. I do know about this. Yeah. 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 And, and, Tell and, me more though. <laughs> and his, his, his colleague, John Ossoff, who's also a Democrat is, is a Jewish man, Jewish white man. So, you know, the fact that you have black and other historically minority groups voting in large numbers and swaying elections you know that's part of the big lie about the election being stolen um all of that stuff is is part of the backlash as you ask where we are we're in the middle of a backlash but the backlash takes different forms part of the backlash is critical race theory and labeling any conversation around racism as critical race theory and therefore off limits 
Another part of the backlash is let's change the subject. It's let's not talk about anti-black police brutality. Let's talk about masks. Let's talk about, you know, these other issues that are all, you know, important, but how quickly, how quickly we move on from that critical issue of racism in our nation. So where are we now? Uh, we're in the middle of a backlash and um, we ought to recognize it so that we can continue fighting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. A couple, few more wrap up questions. One, have you seen Summer of Soul? Yes. What'd you think about that? Um, I viewed it primarily as a historian. Okay. Uh, so thankful that they didn't throw that footage out and it became it, it, <laughs> yeah, it right. was, yeah. It yeah, was yeah, yeah. this close to just being considered garbage and unimportant and we would have lost all of that um the second thing that stood out to me was how very saturated with christianity so so much of it was oh my goodness yeah um, from the music itself to the actual artists and performers and their outlooks and and what they believed um and you know, the, 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 the really important juxtaposition of, you know, Woodstock versus Summer of Soul. Yeah, right. Yeah. And who gets attention. And oh, that's true. So, yeah. so. <laughs> meaning like a cultural question of why was this buried as opposed to this, like I grew up with Woodstock. It's like Woodstock, exactly. you know, like, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that kind of thing. Exactly. But the, the beauty of black culture is what like shown out to me that I kind of grew up with, but in a very pop culture kind of way. Sure. Um, sure. Yeah. And this could sure. be a whole other topic of podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go out like and that. watch Summer of Soul. We didn't even get. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but there you go. Th thanks. Just thanks for commenting on. It. I just thought the beauty of it. I was, I was just so deeply moved. But also because I do, I teach history. Is like this is 1969. This is a year after MLK died. I mean, That's right. That's this right. is this is nuts, man. Like this, right. America is on the verge. And right. I don't know. I was just putting all that in context. So. Really good. Yeah. Glad yeah. you brought that up. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Go watch it. It's on Hulu. <laughs> pay, pay, pay me for the ad. Pay me for the ad. That's okay. right. That's right. Um, okay. A quick question. You wrote a book, How to Fight Racism for Adults or a General Population. Then you wrote one for, for kids, for young people. Did you have, what's, is there a difference in approach? Did you, in between writing one and the other, did you come up with another idea? You're like, oh man, I got to insert this into it or just, Anything in there that was kind of like a new realization? I tried to be more narrative driven in the young readers edition, um, both because kids respond better to story in general. I mean, we all do, but especially kids also because for pedagogical reasons, you know, it, it, it could stick a little bit better if you have concrete examples. So we added and it was fun because I get to go back to my childhood and add a lot of personal stories yeah. in there. And then, of course, we had to adapt uh, some of the recommendations to, you know, kids eight years old and up. So it's a lot of stuff focused on school and family, which are, you know, where kids are found rather than a, a workplace or something like that. But fundamentally, you know, we keep the arc of racial justice, awareness, relationships, commitment. And, and, and what I'm trying to do is two things. Number one, a big chunk of the So we sort of combined Color of Compromise and How to Fight Racism in the Young Readers Edition. That. So we're trying to give kids a historical foundation for saying, well, why is racism such a big problem anyway? So that, I think that's particularly important as we're talking about. We're in this environment of book banning, of all things, right, <laughs> at the state level. 
so so if you want your kids to know some of this racial history, a good 20, 25% of the book is history, racial history. And then um, the other thing I'm trying to do is let kids know they have agency. Yeah. If they see something wrong or experience something wrong, they can do something about it. And if that's all they get from the book, then I think that's well worth it. I like, uh, I mean, there's, it comes in a few sections, but maybe a little bit more towards the end where you, you just kind of listing out ideas like, hey, you could try this, you could try that, you know, it could look like this. I, I don't know. I think that would be really cool. Like as a kid, like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's there for the taking. And and I'm so excited because I mean, my kid's not a big reader. You, yeah. you give him a book like this. And even though he's right in the age range, he, he wouldn't, it'd be like pulling teeth to get him That's to true. read it. So what we're doing is uh, doing a multimedia approach. So pretty soon we're going to have a set of six, videos all 15 to 20 minutes long and we're going to have a six episode uh limited run podcast series which i'm really excited about because i got to go to a school clarksdale collegiate here in the delta and talk to fourth and fifth graders so you'll hear recordings of that audio conversation mixed in with my more direct and this is i keep telling folks this is not content for parents and adults so they can teach their children this is content directly talking to young people so that you don't have to translate you just have them listen to the podcast watch the video read the book i'm speaking directly to young people and adults can listen in amplify explain all of that stuff but you don't need to take that extra step of translating the material to young people because because it's not speaking to them i haven't watched through the whole thing but i think it's still up there uh color compromise is on amazon prime is it still up there do you think is that right so it's kind of a similar thing in that sense in in a way it's a it's a curriculum that people can incorporate that's really cool thank you for mentioning that i in my brain I, i do summer book clubs i teach this online school like you know kids from all over i'm thinking like I'm, it's too late for for this year because I have everything submitted. But I'm thinking like I think your book would be a great for my a summer book club for my school. Uh, they might call me a critical race theorist or whatever. Yeah. We'll see what happens. But and you can say you know what I never went to law school, but thank you for for thinking that I had that much knowledge. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Postgraduate right. legal education. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you th- you think so highly of me. Exactly. Uh, but yeah, thank Flip you so much. Flip the script on him. <laughs> that's right um okay so last question uh i love this part there's this part in your audiobook where you go it's hard <laughs> you remember saying you remember remember recording that was that the intro was that like i think one? it was like i thought it was like more towards the end where you be. were just going like you know what this this is tough one of the things that we like to talk about on our podcast is people coming up with replacing bad ideas with good ideas right um just give me a little glimpse of what like you've you've already given me a lot but like what you're doing with the witness and or any other groups that you would like to raise up and say this is the work we're doing i just want to raise up what you know some of the good things going on so i mean it goes back to our earlier point of if there are you know in our context black folks who are doing good racial justice work uh, find it and and amplify it. And so, you know, um, we started the Witness Foundation 
which, you know, I haven't come up with a way to say it that is as powerful as it really is, but we are funding five Black Christian leaders to the tune of $100,000 over a two-year fellowship, like unrestricted monies. I mean, they can pay themselves, they can hire people, they can get uh, marketing, whatever it is. Like, I can't name another program that's doing that, especially given our size, like maybe a huge philanthropic historic entity, but we don't even have, we've had to fundraise every penny of that from scratch. So, so go to thewitnessfoundation.co, thewitnessfoundation.co, and you can learn all about what we consider the next generation of Black Christian civil rights leaders. There are all kinds of great organizations like the BCC, which is our multimedia arm, the Black Christian Collective, uh, the Jude Three Project by Lisa Fields, Truth oh, Table. I listened to a few episodes of that. Yeah, yeah she's brilliant, and she's bringing in incredible voices. Akemeni Uwan and Christina Edmondson of Truth's Table. They have a new book coming out in April. Everybody should pre-order it and and listen to their podcast, Truth's Table. And so there's tons of activity right now, and and you can support that and never ever ever underestimate the value and importance of writing a check like because of the racial wealth gap, because of historic inequality, the work that we're doing is chronically underfunded and under-resourced. And that's what causes the burnout. That's what causes people to quit. That's what causes people to have physical and mental issues, right? Doing this work. So if they were well resourced, look at how much we've done with a fraction of what we need. Imagine if we had a more robust uh, resource base. And then lastly, myself, I'm on this interesting journey. It's been um, a really wild year in 2021 professionally where I stepped down from my day-to-day role at The Witness. I took up this other position uh, at the Center for Anti-Racist Research at Boston University. I worked there remotely for five months and then stepped down from that in August of 21 on the same day I defended my dissertation. So now I am am self-employed. My goal is to help people become lifelong advocates for racial justice. So I wanna produce resources in as many media forms as possible to make that happen. So if people are interested in supporting me and my work, they can go to uh, jamartisby.com. You'll find links to all my books. And, And critically, critically, the one action step is to subscribe to my newsletter. Uh, it's a Substack deal. You can subscribe for free, or if you really want to support the work, you can become a paid subscriber, and that serves as a as a as a financial base for me to put out videos, write books, um, speak different places, write articles, all of those kinds of things. So that would be a huge, huge help, along with something basic like if you've read any of my books and appreciate them, leave a review, mm-hmm. share it on social media, spread the word, those kinds of things. Really quickly, uh, your dissertation, I know dissertations are big. What's the elevator speech for the dissertation? And is that in the publishing, in works for publishing as well? Is, is it more, yeah. obviously more academic than, than. Yeah, way more academic. Yeah, <laughs> I would hope so, yeah. <laughs> it's an intellectual history dealing with uh, Black Christian engagement with the Black power movement. So Interesting. hopefully at some point that'll be a book. And then, you know, if people need help sleeping, one night they can pick it up (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure it'll be great i don't know i that's something else that uh, uh, um 
a part of history that I'm still learning about. There's just so much to learn. That's right. That's right. That's so right. I, appreciate, well, I that. appreciate what you're doing at the high school level, teaching about policy, politics, government. I mean, that's some of the most crucial front lines work that we have to do right now. And it's also very embattled work such that I'm sure, you know, when you talk and teach about certain subjects, you're like, okay, is this going to come back with an angry parent email, an angry student email, a, a remark, a comment, something like that. So uh, I can imagine how fraught it is right now to be a teacher uh, dealing with these subjects. So thank you for what you do. Oh, thanks. Thanks for your time today. It's been great. Uh, just appreciate your vulnerability and, uh, and uh, straightforwardness. So it's good. Just reflecting back what you put out, man. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be good or useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.